0: And I found things on the internet and want to talk to you today about them. As it happens, they are all connected to the Nutanix.next 2017 conference. So strap into your hyperconvergence rocket as the data knots aim towards the clouds. At packetpushers.net, you can find this in all of our data shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for data knots spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the gregarious Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who once went on stage, dropped the mic, and got a standing ovation without ever saying a word. Chris, my friend, we've both been traveling and we're back together on the <laughs> mic. And uh, hey, man, you went to this conference, Nutanix.next. Just uh, just as an intro, what was that conference all about, and what'd you think? I thought I could just drop the mic and leave. Is that. <laughs> no, I'm afraid this is a uh, audio only show, so the visual that you'd need to get away with that is just not going to happen. Okay, so the thumping noise won't work. Well, no. It was action-packed. I mean, taking a step back a little
1: bit, the show had grown quite a bit. I've been to every single one thus far, which is pretty cool, doing the uh, little uh, hand gesture there. But uh, it it was pretty cool, grew quite a bit. This time, the focus was all about cloud in various ways. It was cloud, cloud, cloud. If you haven't gotten tired of that term yet, too bad, because it's here to stay. So all the way from partnering up with GCP to talking about networking type things down the stack to some acquisitions they had made in the past and how they're leveraging that IP. So it's a very cloudy show, which is different because previous shows were much more about advancing the feature sets within the hypervisor itself, creating their own hypervisor. If you'll remember, the Acropolis hypervisor came out, you know, two, three versions ago, whatever it may be. It's no longer really about the platform and the you know kind of check boxes and, and levers that you can pull in that realm. It's more about the applications that would be put onto the a- platform and kind of pushing the edge into the cloud. So
0: that, that's kind of the high level. That's what I took away from the the three things we found on the Internet that all tie back to uh, to this show and their announcements. And, and the first one, Nutanix and Google Cloud partner up. This was one of the big announcements coming out of .next. That uh, really underscores your point here—that Nutanix isn't just about hyperconverged within your data center, but also extending up into cloud. So, what's the gist of the announcement they made?
1: Sure, and and it was fun because um, I was at Google's conference, also a very similar name. It's called Google Next, Google Cloud Next, which I think it was March or so of this year. So at Dot Next, we got to see Diane Green again on stage talking with the folks at Nutanix, and this was more about. I mean, these aren't direct quotes or anything, but kind of an admission that you look at Microsoft and you look at Amazon, they've made forays into the enterprise. Microsoft obviously has a lot of traction and stickiness in the enterprise because it's been their target demographic for quite some time. You know, even back in the Balmer days, developers, developers, all that kind of jazz. So Microsoft, this is, you know, their bread and butter. AWS has at least discovered that, hey, there's a channel out there and I need to work with them to start getting into these named accounts in these large enterprises. Google... We talked about it a bit at the next show back in earlier of this year that they don't really have a strong way to penetrate the enterprise uh, to make those relationships happen. And Nutanix obviously is very focused on that particular segment of the market and the various verticals that are within that. And so they're looking at potentially that the partnership from my perspective to strategically target those accounts and take away that you've already got all these customers running Nutanix anyways. They're looking to consume public cloud resources. That's hard. And so perhaps if the two of them partner up, they can make that easier.
0: Yes, that that is very much how I see it in that Google has been great over the years in building new technology and bringing the technology to the market in a way that's like, look at this cool thing we built here and kind of like handing you this pile of stuff that isn't necessarily very easy to consume. And enterprises really want that easy button. So a partnership like this says, okay, you want to consume public cloud. You also use Nutanix, which is made its name in part on being easy to use. So let's integrate these two. Now you can have your local workloads and then move them up to the Google cloud and have it all be within the confines of your Nutanix interface that you're familiar with. Exactly. And some of the things that I heard when
1: talking to various executives and whatnot at the show was that hey, do you ever have a maintenance window in the cloud? The answer is no. You can't assume anything below the application stack, perhaps the PaaS layer. But there's a lot of assumptions that you just simply cannot make in the Google or or public cloud world, and that Nutanix's focus has been to provide the same experience on-prem. They actually have a lot of IP. If you've not used their product before, a lot of the features that I personally enjoy revolve around making the underlay, you know, the the servers and the compute, the network that are within the control of Nutanix, very, very invisible. That's their their marketing term is like invisible infrastructure, but it really is. You know, if you want to do rolling upgrades across the entire cluster, you don't have to schedule maintenance. You just kind of push a button. And I'm not saying that they're the only ones to kind of figure that out, you know, Cisco UCS as an example, has had a, a bundles and B bundles to upgrade the infrastructure, the fabric interconnects, the, the blade servers and everything like that. But it's not push-button done. It's push-button sort of done, have to kind of remember what you're doing. You know, there's still chances that things can blow up because there's a choke point at the FI layer. This really is, you know, push-button, and it'll even convert hypervisors if you would like. I mean, it's very, very simple. Uh, So they're trying to provide a cloud-like experience on-prem, and that's been, I think, their marketing push for quite some time. If they can, you know, if they've already mentally given people the journey so that you're not focusing on nerd knobs and port density and, and you know server stuff you know the things that i found interesting as an engineer for years yeah <laughs> then you're already kind of thinking cloudy uh, i feel dirty just saying that but you know what i mean right <laughs> I
0: you're, do. you're thinking in a world where it's more about the app I mean, there's a lot of people that are beginning to think cloudy if you will and, and i think Okay, so you look at a company like Nutanix and and right, I was a Nutanix consumer at one point in my career as well, back in the back in their earlier days. And right, you you would buy hardware and you would rack it and get it networked and then off you'd go with it. It was this hardware centric kind of a, a well, it was a hardware and software centric kind of a thing. You know, where you were you were racking compute, you were racking, you know, power, the ability to do processing. Again, that was easy to use and it took out a lot of as you put it, the, the nerd knobs that you just kind of didn't have to think about too hard anymore, which was good. But now when you look at an infrastructure maker like that, someone who is used to putting blocks of compute into your rack and powering your data center, and they're going to lose revenue if you're moving to public cloud, how do they How do they keep you in the fold? You know, How does a Nutanix keep you in the fold if you're trying to outsource to public cloud? And this seems to be a way. So Anyone who's an infrastructure maker, is, got, I think, has got to have a strategy like this, integrating public cloud or losing revenue. Of course, we saw VMware, one of their big announcements last year was more or less exactly this, integrating AWS. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's somewhat of a different play, but, but, you know, the same kind of a mindset. We don't want to lose them. How do we keep them around? Yeah, and that was – there's actually a quote,
1: uh, I think Diane said it, where she's mentioning VMware being, you know, this is her words, the most non-disruptive disruptive technology. You know, people can read that and think, oh, that's a negative. No, that's a positive because being disruptive is how you gain market share. But you can't just can't just disrupt, you know, like the board cube coming in and assimilating the data center. It doesn't work like that. And if we remember back in the virtualization days, a lot of people had no idea that they were running virtualized. I mean, unless you really told them or they were smart and they saw the the VM guest tools or something like that running. The idea was to be non-disruptive at the application and the user experience layer while being extremely disruptive on the TCO and the ROI and the actual data center layer itself, you know, disrupt the engineers and the architects, not the people that are just looking to get their job done at the more app layer. Uh, So I I think that's, I think that's an homage to VMware. And it's really what you talk about. If you're going to be a software provider being, you know, the Acropolis and Prism software stacks that Nutanix brings to the table, you can't just forever assume that people are going to buy on-prem equipment. You know, I think that that, the growth curve is going to continue that we're going to have more and more data center spend at the colo layer and things like that. But the public cloud stuff is far outpacing that spend you know, ratio. I don't think there's going to be one winner overall. It's not going to be everything's public cloud and data centers just die off like the dodo. But You know, there's certainly the day of having just data centers or data centers in colos. I think that one is pretty much past its prime. I don't really see anyone going full on just data center, no public cloud for anything unless they have a very specific use case.
0: There is a weird question here about this. So Nutanix is aligned with Google Cloud Platform. Okay, that's cool. But in almost any vendor partnership where they're aligning themselves with public cloud in some way, the pecking order has been AWS. And then, Azure kind of running a close second, and then, oh yeah, we should do Google too. You know, really a, a distant third, and all of a sudden you've got Nutanix putting you know their their flag you know, primarily and starting up with Google. So, so first of all, did you hear that this was an exclusive thing that they're not going to do Amazon or Azure, or are they just starting with Google?
1: I think any executive worth their salt would never talk in negatives. You're not going to say I'm never going to do a partnership with Amazon or or Azure. So that's kind of an open question. The the, the real I, I guess a couple things that I would point out on this relationship. One, it doesn't seem to be exclusive forever. It's certainly exclusive today. And that makes sense because yeah, you go after number three in the market share. Uh the folks at the top level of Google at the GCP, you know, the next conference earlier in this year were very clear that they had spent multiple billions of dollars on this infrastructure. Obviously they're looking for ways to sell it off to make money and revenue come in on that expenditure. So that makes sense. And they're just they're hungry. They're looking to put skin in the game. And obviously that means discounts and potentially there's green fields of data center resources that are looking to be consumed. And the way I'm thinking about it is this the real draw with Azure and Amazon, you know, AWS, is that they have a lot of these differentiating features and applications, you know, SaaS type offerings, if you're abstracting away from that and you're using the Nutanix software, you know, they're talking about applications are wrapped in digital containers and then deployed on-prem using Nutanix hardware or one of their partner ecosystem OEMs, as well as Google Cloud using Kubernetes in the public environment. Well, then you don't really care what the specific features and things are in the public cloud. You just want cheap and deep because that, that Nutanix layer is often the abstraction. So I think Google makes sense at that point.
0: There's another point worth reflecting on here, though, and that is, you remember the VMware announcement where they talked about VMware services running on AWS, and they talked about how they were doing that integration, and it wasn't, maybe you know better, but it wasn't clear to me that VMware had partnered with AWS to deliver this service, not deeply anyway, it was more like, well, because a question came up, well, what happens when the API changes and all that stuff, do you get advance notice, and they were like, well, no, but it'll be fine. It was kind of the answer we got at that time. So I'm wondering if a partner, a, a true partnership here that's announced between Nutanix and Google Cloud means that it is a deep and mutual relationship, not just Nutanix figuring out Google Cloud APIs and then making it easy for their customers to leverage them, but actually there's incentive there, maybe financial incentive, where Google Cloud is offering financial remuneration to Nutanix for their customers that end up standing up workloads in the Google Cloud. Maybe that's part of the deal.
1: Maybe. I I think some key differentiators there are VMware and AWS, at least from what I've gleamed, and obviously we're not going to know the full story until it leaves tech preview and enters GA, which I think is Q3 or or later this year. Certainly at VMware, they're going to talk more about it. But the differentiator is that VMware on AWS is literally just running VMware code in the AWS data center and having kind of a direct access pipe to those resources without having to traverse the WAN. So it's kind of like, literally having uh, express route or direct access, depending on the cloud provider's terminology, to get kind of like an L2 handoff in a colo. You know, here you go, here's your pipe, use it. And then you get the adjacency to those. We talked about that in the uh, Cloud Connect, uh, the cross-connect type type show, I think with uh, Mark back in the day. So that seems to be why I would imagine they're shying away from any worry about the API and things like that, because it's still your problem. <laughs> you're just, you're running your infrastructure in someone else's data center. I'm sure there's some financial impacts to that 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 make that more lucrative than the old vCloud hybrid service or the vCloud Air that got sold off recently. Whereas this seems a bit more like we're going to use a scheduling system, being Kubernetes, that's already kind of managed, or at least a lot of code contribution and stewardship's coming from Google to kind of schedule and run etc. All the digital containers, they they use some very loose terminology there. Whatever it's actually using to deploy the application stack. It could be actual Docker containers. It could be applications that are running on virtual machines. Who knows? But if you have one scheduling system running across those two systems, then it's not really API level concerns, right? It's just more making sure that the Kubernetes instance that you're running, where is it running? Where's the management actually at? and what version of the API you're running within that environment so that it can talk to the Nutanix APIs. That feels like it'd be easier than trying to mask against all the various AWS APIs because there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on there.
0: You got to wonder why they chose the term digital containers as opposed to the analog ones or... Physical containers. It's the next big thing. It's a
1: unikernel running on a a duck. It's (laughs) flying. I don't know. (laughs) Hey, loyal listeners, I know you love knots and maybe you want to meet in Space, get a sticker or two, high five, whatever it is you're looking for. You can come grab me at VMworld US. Uh, I'll be at the US and the Europe show. So the US show is August 27th through the 31st, and the VMworld Europe show is in Barcelona, September 11th through the 14th. As well as Microsoft Ignite, I'll be there as well. Orlando, Florida, the 25th through the 29th of September. So if you see me walking around, just say, hey, I want some stickers. Hey, you poke a finger at me, preferably not in my eye, because I need those. And I'll have data knots and Wall Network stickers and uh, high fives. So let's switch gears. Let's talk about networking stuff. I'll just go get a soda or something while you're talking about that, Ethan. Uh, kidding. <laughs> kidding. So so you were actually briefed, what, at Cisco Live from Aviatrix about the announcement they made at .next. Tease it apart for us.
0: That's right. So Cisco Live US, um, that conference was held the same week that uh, .next was going on, uh, some overlap there. And right, I was at Cisco Live, and I got a briefing from Aviatrix uh, about the announcement they were going to be making uh, a few days later at... Next, So Aviatrix is a cloud networking company. Their whole goal is to make it easy to get the plumbing done between your private cloud and your public cloud. So they make it easy to stand up the, the network pipes that you need between those two environments. And uh, I was briefed by their CEO, Stephen Mee, I think you pronounce it. M-I-H is his last name. Apologize if I didn't get that quite right. And he talked to me about the product, about what the announcement was and where they're headed with Aviatrix over time. So in short, the announcement is they are partnering up with Nutanix and they're also going to be working or are working with Cisco HyperFlex to to do this hybrid cloud stitching, uh, if you will. And that was it. That was the the big announcement, meaning from within the Nutanix console, you would be able to perform plumbing to Amazon Web Services and Azure initially. And also Google Cloud, which we were just talking about. Google Cloud also coming soon. And he said feature parity is there for AWS and Azure, not quite for Google Cloud yet, but that is coming pretty soon.
1: <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of interesting. It's like an announcement at Google Cloud, and then another one where not not Google Cloud yet. So it's yeah, <laughs> it's a checker type of
0: integration here, right? But but I think it maybe it goes after the. Um, you know, Aviatrix, just standing back and looking at their goal. I mean, they're, where are they trying to aim for? They're aiming for where the the most action is, and right now that's AWS and Azure. You know, those are the networking problems that they're trying to solve. The product, what it's really doing, is just its security across the public internet. So it effectively is an interface that lets you stand up tunnels between your cloud and your data center, or between if you have multiple cloud environments, which a lot of folks do, between those environments. And just having it all be push button where usually – and these are IPsec tunnels. So these are encrypted tunnels. There's a key exchange involved for authentication. And they automate all of that stuff. All you got to do is say, I need connectivity between here and here. And you pick it all off of a drop-down list. They showed it to me. And then boom, tunnel comes up. It monitors it. And you can control who uses the tunnels. The tool will help you with overlapping address space. It lets you design things for latency. If you're, you're like, oh, if I stood up a tunnel between here and here, that would improve latency between these two devices that need to talk to each other, uh, and so on. You know, it's it's a needed tool, making that easy. Because um, I can tell you from you know my background in networking, standing up IPsec tunnels by hand, that sucks a <laughs> lot. It's just it's horrible. And in fact, if you look at SD-WAN solutions, you know a lot of the technology that's built into the SD-WAN solutions is all about automating the tunnels that need to go yeah. between the SD-WAN endpoints. As I'm hearing this, I'm
1: thinking, okay, this sounds very SD-WAN. Am I just a noob or, or is that a big piece of this? Because it sounds like it's an SD-WAN player, but specifically for Nutanix talking to public cloud?
0: Well, the SD-WAN world is really about quality so that you can use a public transport but deliver a certain quality of experience because they do things like latency measurements and jitter measurements so that the tunnel that they've stood up between the endpoints is is of a particular quality that matches whatever your application needs. I didn't get that Aviatrix was doing that. It was more about the managing of the tunnels themselves, you know, stitching the endpoints together, but not necessarily about – actual quality of like if you stood up three tunnels in parallel it would like pick the best one for a certain you know bit of traffic i didn't get that that was there uh you know, it could be i missed something but but no i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't think of them as WAN. i thought okay. of them more as magic glue that takes you away from having to understand the api constructs and so <laughs> on of the various cloud environments Magic glue, you like that well, I magic glue my head immediately went somewhere else. Don't sniff the magic <laughs> Don't sniff glue. Don't the magic glue, right? <laughs> or else you'll
1: see the drop packets as they hit the floor of the data center. Absolutely. So is this just something that's focused on Nutanix? Does Aviatrix say we are focusing specifically on them? Or, or how does that I guess, kind of blend with the HyperFlex story as well?
0: Right, right. So, so, no, they are definitely not signing up exclusive partnerships with, uh, with anybody. Nutanix is, you know, the big play, and that was their big announcement this week, that they were going to be aligned with that platform and, uh, you know, one of the, you know, integrated services that you can get. But they've also stated Cisco HyperFlex. They're big in that environment as well. And we'll see where else it goes. So, you know, and again, they haven't bet on any single public cloud either. You know, it's AWS and Azure and uh, Google Cloud, uh, you know, coming along, and we'll see you know, where that goes. I mean, they're addressing a problem that's common. They're, they're addressing, a you know, kind of a big deal because if you start trying to plumb all this stuff up by hand, especially as, you know, it's like one thing if you had like, oh, I've got like one or two data centers and I've got, you know, one instance up in AWS that I need plumbing to. Well, okay. So you stand up a Cisco cloud router and do the plumbing by hand and it's fine. You know, that's not hard. But just as soon as you end up with a complex computing environment where you got a bunch of different cloud presences... Remember the show we did with John Merline about um you know his experience standing up applications in public cloud where they were using several <laughs> different public clouds. It's like all of a sudden our latency is horrible. Why Well, because you're authenticating between here on this part of the world and this other server that's in a different part of the world, and now you've got you know twenty milliseconds of latency just for those servers to talk to one another. Of course, it's going to be slow. Well, okay. So you end up with that sort of complexity, and now you have an easy way where you can start standing up these IPsec tunnels between the environments. So to me, that was pretty awesome to be able to, you know, from a drop down box say, I need a tunnel between these endpoints, and then off you go. Yeah, and it and it lends
1: well with the, the idea behind making all this usable. And by this I mean private and multiple public resources all working together more at the application layer, which is the goal. It's what we're trying to make because managing all this at the infrastructure layer is freaking insane. It just does not seem like our meat spatulas can do that. My noodle doesn't work at that level. So being able to make all that simple is really the brass ring that everybody's reaching for. So I, I could see some value in that. And I also, as I was reading through it, I saw they, they are or potentially do integrate with Calm, uh, which is the company that Nutanix purchased a year ago, something like that, that sounds groovy.
0: There is a, a point we could raise here about all the complexity that's being masked away by 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 what's going on. And again, going back to our conversation with John, it seems like, oh, just throw things in the cloud, and as long as they can reach each other, it'll work, it'll be great. And, and you haven't actually designed or thought through what the application flow looks like, et cetera. And just as soon as you start moving workloads all over the place, and you've got a lot of different places that you could be putting things, well do you understand actually what that's doing to your environment? And I think a tool like aviatrix, you know, a tool like Nutanix, um, connecting you up to Google Cloud, so that you don't really have to think about it. You can just easily move a workload up there. That ease of use means we can do really stupid things, you know, in a hurry and, uh, you know, really awesomely, terribly have built an infrastructure that now is underperforming and we got to figure out why. So I, I guess I don't know how you feel about this, Chris, but to me there's a there's a concern I have in that being easy to use means you can do dumb things and how do we prevent that as an industry? You know, is that a training thing? Is that a common sense thing? I mean, should we just say engineers should bloody well know better, you know, than to do X, Y, or Z when you've got a push button that says, I can do this and then stand up a tunnel or you know, move a workload. Eh. Yeah, there's
1: always a balance there. Um I'm certainly looking forward to our AI overlords that can just automatically tune globally you know, placed public and private resources on the fly. But uh,
0: they're not here yet, and I don't think they're going to be here anytime soon. So drive your internet safely. Well, look, Actually, no, hang on, though. Back up a second, because th- there is some of that there. I mean, think about Turbonomic, who was a sponsor on the show last year sometime. They, they do some of that stuff now. But that's the thing. Everyone does some of it. To me, there's no – there's
1: nothing that's kind of like your co-pilot that's looking over the entire like network, storage, the application performance, user experience, the whole nine yards and can see then everything <laughs> to where you can literally just put anybody off the street pulling levers and going, woo, application deployed. You know, like that's more – like Apple can do that with deploying an application or a service to your phone, but th- that's a different ballgame, you know?
0: Well, you're hitting on a point here. You you weren't there, but I wanted an epic rant in a podcast I recorded at Cisco Live with uh, some friends talking about the challenge we have with telemetry data. So we have rich telemetry data coming in from all parts of the IT stack, and yet we tend to look at that data siloed because you got technology specialists. Like, okay, if you throw a bunch of stuff at me, telemetry data about an HTTP server – I kind of know what most of it means, right? I'm not, you know, I can dig in and kind of understand what those things mean, but I'm not so intimately familiar with the inner workings of an HTTP server that I'm going to look at that telemetry data and have a, you know, an instinctive knowledge about what's right or what's wrong about how the environment is performing. However, you throw at me a whole bunch of telemetry data from a network and, you know, start talking to me about inner packet gaps and Packets dropped and out discards and you know a lot of other information, and I can give you a pretty good sense just because i've been doing it for a long time of what's really going on in the network and how good or bad it's performing. so my rant was we need a tool in the data set that integrates all of this information we need a an ai a you know a super brain that can take. Web server information and storage infrastructure information and networking information and security information and take all of that telemetry, log data, et cetera, munge it together and then know how all of these things interrelate. I mean, we're seeing – I had a briefing with a company that does some of this like root cause analysis where they're taking information from all over the place and trying to get to a root cause that at a point in time, this application was underperforming and here's why. That was – um. Wila networks, U I L A. It's a Hawaiian word, and Wila was, I think I pronounced that right. Is about that they're still not taking in huge amounts of telemetry data from everywhere, but they are trying to correlate in a in a more deep way what's really happening up and down the stack and how applications are prevented. It's still more infrastructure focused than application focused, though. Again, I think we we need to get to a point as an industry where. All of the information from everywhere in the stack comes together. And again, the best way I can think to describe it is the super brain that can put all the pieces together and tell us exactly what's wrong.
1: Okay. I'm going to load my blowgun and uh, (laughs) throw the tranquilizer dart at your neck to get you (laughs) off your soapbox.
0: Okay. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So back back to Aviatrix then, now that I've fallen off my soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) Aviatrix more details coming on the solution in July 2017 so sometime this month if you're listening to this as we've published it it's going to be available on the Nutanix marketplace as well as through sales and channel partners of Nutanix and Aviatrix so keep tuned if that is an interesting solution to you as a Nutanix or Hyperflex customer I think what they're doing at Aviatrix is, uh, is pretty interesting I like easy buttons <music> Hey everyone, Ethan here. I am going to be doing a little bit of traveling uh, myself, heading off to US is the next place that you can see me. And uh, as Chris mentioned earlier, I'll have stickers with me for the Datanauts podcast and Packet Pushers as well. And hey, while I'm thinking about Packet Pushers and community, would you like to Contribute to the Packet Pushers community blog at packetpushers.net. We've got a column that is for anyone in the community who wants to share something. Maybe you don't want to start up your own blog because that seems hard. Well, fine. You can if you've got something cool you want to share, go to packetpushers.net and uh, we can set you up with an author account that allows you to publish your wit, wisdom, and brilliance and share it with everyone that is part of our community. And that's. Thousands of people, really, genuinely. So you'll have an instant audience, people that can give you feedback, and uh, you're sharing your knowledge and making the world a better place. That'd be great. Send us an email, backatbutchers at gmail.com, and just say, hey, I want to be a community blogger. We'll work with you and get you set up. So, Chris, I'm going to hand it back to you. Uh, more announcements from Nutanix. next. A couple of products here. Calm and... Uh, I'm going to get this wrong. Z, XI, whatever. ZI. Xi. Xi, Sorry. Calm and ZI. All hail so, Lord ZI. <laughs> Lord Xi. <Zy. laughs> it does sound a bit, you know, like evil Martian or something. But, yeah. but, but we want to start with uh, with, with the announcement of Calm, uh Complete Application Lifecycle Management. And I got to say, I love the acronym COM. It's like, I've never used an IT product called COM. It's always got some, you know, hyperflex, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, it sounds like things are about to explode. You know, COM is like, Oh, I totally want to use Calm because I need a to relax tree, in my yeah, life. Beach, a yeah. Bit of the sun. Yeah. Pina
1: Colada. Absolutely. So, for those playing the at home game, Calm.io was actually bought by Nutanix, what, a year ago? Something like that. Anything that's older than a week, I just tend to forget. I, I tend to purge the brain. But they bought them. And at the time, there was a lot of conjecture what are they going to do with this particular company? The curtain is off this particular uh, wizard, and we can see what he's doing on the control panel. Just like with the original Com.io, it's about application lifecycle management as they dictate. Where in this case, it's more about giving you a service portal, the ability to go to um, kind of like a marketplace. I think that's actually what they're building it as to find applications that you want to deploy within. Today, I would assume your on-prem Nutanix, but ultimately to your cloud type environments with Google, you know, GCP, etc., um, and. Per their quotes, you know, distilling it down to what it does, it takes all the application automation, you know, to actually build, do the day two operations, retire, etc. Uh, at the application level and all the governance that goes along with that and handle it at the application level orchestration as well as the cloud driven infrastructure. So it's kind of to me reminds me of blueprints that have been done in so many different applications that you get from tools to build and manage and to, and retire these
0: applications. Well, I would think of it as a service catalog.
1: Yeah, I think that's about right. I mean, marketplace service catalog, and you know, ultimately here is a Denny's menu of options and do you want chili on top of your hash browns or sour cream or both? You kind of decide, you push the buttons and out spits an application. The difference I think here is that it could be a little more complex. It's obviously looking at, Different environments above and beyond just what you have today can make more decisions about that. Kind of have to see. Uh, I will say at a partner level, they're going to start certifying both the vendors that can potentially offer their applications. So if you want to offer a virtual application or a container application through Com, you can go through the process to get certified and then become a you know certified Com application or blueprint that Nutanix allows you to put in the marketplace. There's some carrots out there. Obviously, the stick would be missing out on the marketplace.
0: So the magic is really in the creation of the ecosystem. In the form of these blueprints, you've got – okay. So again, it goes back to this is an automated thing, but it's not a Star Trek replicator. You're not saying Earl Grey hot. You're saying here's a choice of things that I could make for you and I can make these for you because some human made them already and put them into my catalog and you can choose from these. Like, Like you said, Denny's menu list of options. So, okay, I I get it. I get it. But more than that, it's not just meant for kind of the engineer or
1: even a a more intelligent IT. You know, I don't mean intelligent, like stupid versus intelligent, but someone that really knows the application and the infrastructure. You can also bake in things like who should approve it, where should it potentially go. You can have like gating within the system so that as we trigger the steps, you know, you make sure that the execution follows the necessity of governance and whatnot. Yep as well as understanding dependencies uh, at a network level, and infrastructure level. Because I think we've hit on that multiple times, that deploying applications, I think that's the easy part. You know, just going next, next, finish, it's installed, getting things to talk to each other. That's not that hard. But making sure that if you're doing a more distributed type application or an application that resides partially on-prem, partially in cloud, getting the network bits to talk to one another and not worry about L2 or L3 collisions, things like that, that's challenging. And potentially, you can start operating at this level so that it can say, oh, Com has deployed an application. It looks like this. This is the topology of the application. It has these six virtual machines or whatnot. And then other
0: parts of the stack can then stitch together the networking for that.
1: And it can treat it like a thing instead of IPs and Macs and whatnot.
0: So there's more intelligence there than it sounds like. I, mean, I remember some early... Templating kinds of tools and so on that I used with F5 back in the day when you had to deploy like a complex Microsoft Exchange environment and they would give you templates that you could fill in all the it was their version of an easy button fill in all these blanks and we're going to deploy a few pools and virtual IPs and all of the application layer seven magic that we need to do so that you can load balance Microsoft Exchange. But it was still, if you filled in the blanks wrong, still lots of opportunity to shoot yourself in the foot. You know, this sounds more intelligent from what you're describing. Yeah, and there's some visualization that
1: I saw when it was being demoed where you're not just having to say, you know, server one, server two, all this kind of jazz. You can kind of put the little boxes on the field and drag and connect the application network to this other network and what services are dependent upon it. You can assign cost to resources, which I think is becoming more and more prevalent today. Like, I guess I want to back up. Nothing here on its own, sounds revolutionary. Like, being able to price resources in public clouds, that's been done. Being able to set up automation for an application, that's been done. Being able to do the kind of SDN where you're saying this topology of virtual machines and containers is an application that should be able to talk to another. Those have all been done, but adding them into an experience that's kind of push-button and being able to capture all of that into a blueprint that's kind of driven by governance, compliance, and compliance, and best practices on how you put together the application, I think that's relatively new and being able to make that so so simple that it is just you know pick a blueprint kind of push it out to whatever cloud you want making sure that it's within the price requirements and things like that and on top of that having an open set of apis so that you can kind of do whatever you want now we're getting a little interesting and this is again they just bought it and integrated into the platform so this is 1.0 and it's already pretty palatable like i'm not i'm not saying it needs some major thing which is good
0: well, the question then is, who needs this? Because I'm looking at certain enterprises and going, well, things don't change a lot in their environments. They stand up an app, you know, once a quarter, twice a year, maybe. You know, something new goes on where they really got to dig into the infrastructure and make it go. So, is this really more for a larger shop that you know? Well, we're going to build all these blueprints because we're always standing up, you know, X, Y, and Z, and therefore we need that repeatability so that we autom- we want to be able to automate this thing and not have to do it by hand over and over. And other than that, it wouldn't be worthwhile. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it has to be that new. And, and I asked a similar question,
1: or it wasn't me, it was a colleague, I asked a similar question. And it was, um. You, you know, you have a lot of applications that are, quote unquote, brownfield, you know, they exist today. There's no reason that when you're going through some type of upgrade or schema change or trying to scale it and push it somewhere, like, the applications don't just live statically forever. You're still doing things to them, and including the operating systems that are underlaying the applications. So as you go through those processes, you could potentially replatform into Com. You know, or, or potentially make com the driver that's handling the lifecycle management for current applications so that you're no longer inundated with all these little firefighting activities and having to be reactive to upgrades and loading new binaries and patching and changing the topology of the application. Uh,
0: I think you just snapped the puzzle piece together for me here. You're, you're saying that <laughs> if I tweak the blueprint that fixes my applications using that blueprint?
1: Let's say you've got a three-tier app today. You could build a blueprint for that using the same data stores and things like that underneath. And then when there's a new binary to be deployed or some kind of workflow that should be introduced and automated, rather than making that its own little thing, you know, you have the blueprint instantiated in Calm, you can add that as a step or a workflow within the blueprint so that moving forward, it's kind of the lifecycle management piece of app lifecycle management is handled by Calm. And it doesn't have to be, I'm not going provisioning through retirement for everything. Sometimes it's already provisioned, or maybe I'm kind of provisioning as a clone and then standing it up from there and obviously these are who knows because the product doesn't actually exist till the end of the year but this is where my head's at right i'm just proud of you that you retire things too it's like
0: who does that (laughs) oh you actually shut things down when you're done with them weird
1: yeah imagine offloading that so that you can actually say like who owns this exactly real cmdb like a lot of people have a cmdb it's called excel spreadsheet Yes. Right? So, <laughs> so just those have value, I think, or, or just knowing, you know, the last time this has been touched was three weeks ago. This is the binary that was added. Joe is the person that added the binary. Why was that here? You know, all that metadata that surrounds the application that's typically tribal knowledge. I could see that being a value add. And they're saying that there's, I think there's certain versions of Calm, like a standard or something like that, that are just basically part of your experience as a customer. You don't have to pay for the low level or something like that. I think when you get to Pro or, or some supported version, then you have to actually buy it. So I'm thinking if you already have it anyways at some you know standard or entry level edition, why not use it?
0: Okay, so that's Calm. Complete Application Lifecycle Management, and uh, right, coming relatively soon. So this is Q, we're just in the start of calendar year Q3, 2017. This is supposed to be available in sometime in Q4, 2017. So let's move on to Zy, Chris. What is Zy all about? It's talked about in the context of disaster recovery, but it's actually not just disaster recovery. It's more like a, a platform that you can build services on and uh, as Nutanix and offer them to the end-customer. And DR is like the first initial one. That's the impression I got reading this. Yeah, and I'm still a little fuzzy on it
1: too because it was the the market texture was very high level uh, where it's like the cloud bubble for private and the cloud bubble for public and arrows just kind of go back and forth and things happen.
0: (laughs) Those are the best kind of products. (laughs) I love those.
1: (laughs) So it's still a little abstract at this point. I mean, my takeaway thus far and from what I've heard was essentially it's a way to abstract resources on-prem and in the public cloud so that you can enjoy them as if they were one thing, so that you're not consuming either environment kind of bare metal, so to speak, or at the hypervisor level, so to speak. You have this Zai cloud service that can kind of eyeball your on-prem stuff with Nutanix. You've got these applications and these different networks, and has a lot of information, you know, kind of the metadata, so to speak, of your virtual machines, containers, and the applications themselves. Because if you remember, Nutanix offers file services and block services, and you know, they have all these different services running within Acropolis above and beyond the hypervisor itself. So if it has all this information on the environment locally and if it has resources that can be derived from, uh, what is it, uh, west and east coast in the U.S., you know, Google Compute, et cetera, if they can use those resources for you and then potentially spin up, you know, and handle all the network issues, which is still a huge question mark in my mind, you could potentially start using that for disaster recovery. But, again, we're looking at something that I, I don't think it comes out till next year?
0: Right, right. Uh early early access in 2018 is when the ZDR component is is uh is going to be offered. Right. So th- just to expand on what I'm, you know, what I read and you know what you're saying here, you know, it sounds like Nutanix says, you know, you've got your enterprise cloud running on Nutanix. What if we could offer additional slate of services that integrate into your enterprise cloud only it's offered up in the cloud, you know, some public cloud somewhere. And so you want to do things like, and the first application is going to be disaster recovery. So, okay, we've got these services running for you. They're split between Northern Virginia and San Francisco Bay Area, so East and West Coast U.S. That is part of a team-up they've done with Google. And so now you've got this, like, extension, is almost how I thought of it, environment, under this umbrella service called ZI, and you can do things. And the first thing they're going to be offering is disaster recovery. Now you could move uh, compute, et cetera, up into the cloud and have a, have a DR environment for you. But but one that you manage all from within your
1: – Through Prism.
0: You, you're the familiar – right, Prism, your familiar Nutanix.
1: And that's, a, that's the thing to remember too is that – Ultimately, you know, Acropolis kind of replaced the whole. It used to be Nutanix operating system, NAS, and then it's AOS, the Acropolis operating system. But, but that is just software. There is potentially nothing special in the hardware. There's no special cards or anything. So, if they can get AOS running in either co-located environments that they're subletting from public cloud providers, you know, like an Equinix or something like that, all the way through potentially virtual machines that look like hypervisor endpoints that are running, maybe Acropolis hypervisor, being managed by AOS. You know, Prism's the central management piece that can see all the hosts and clusters. Then it doesn't really matter what the underlie is. And and actually um if you'll remember the Pernix data uh, company that got acquired by Nutanix a year or two ago, you know, they they had a lot of IP around basically data services and kind of being that injection point for for caching and things like that. They had a similar story, I think, where they could put their software in just about anything, and they handled data kind of as an intercept uh, within the hypervisor. But there's a lot of different ways that you can start baking this IP that I think uh, make that something that doesn't require Nutanix-specific hardware. The reason I bring up Pernix was that um, there was a demo using drones, and the drones were had little compute nodes on them. I don't remember if they were nooks or, or what. Um, and that was a cluster, like a flying three-node cluster or four-node cluster of, uh, of, like, flying drones. And if a drone was shot down or something like that, and the three surviving nodes could still reform the cluster. I mean, I think it was it's obviously for fun, you know, as a marketing thing. And and um, Satyam Vagani, that was the CTO at Pernix, was putting this on as, like, one of the, the first day shows uh, showing this, like, drone setup. But it was even mentioned, I think, in the keynote and at the partner day that uh, if the hardware is truly abstracted and if AOS could run on just about anything you want, Then it doesn't matter if four of the nodes within a cluster are drones, two of the nodes are virtual machines running in public cloud, eight of the nodes are running on-prem. You know, it's all one logical thing. That's the unlocking point that makes this DR kind of service through uh, Nutanix XI palatable.
0: I also looked at it as uh, another way that Nutanix can keep revenue (laughs) in-house. That's the goal, right? (laughs) Well, again, going back to how we opened the conversation with the partnership with Google Cloud. Uh, if if customers are going to go to public cloud and you're a provider of local what has been historically local infrastructure, how do you keep those people in the fold? Well, you give them the interface they know and love and allow them to use cloud infrastructure just like they do local compute. I, I see the same kind of a thing here. Well, why outsource to a bunch of third party or fancy products that can help you with the DR if you can keep as much of that in house in the system as possible and just have it be a level up? You know, I'm sure there's some kind of a they won't be giving this away. You know, if you want. Zy disaster (laughs) recovery that you're going to be paying for this. So, and if you, if it fits into your world and it's like, Ooh, I just paid the subscription fee and now I've got these things that used to be grayed out or lit up and I can do this DR stuff. Why wouldn't you do that? You know, just from a revenue enhancement uh, or preservation perspective. So it seems, seems like a common sense thing to, for them to be building out.
1: Common sense for them, for sure. I, I can already envision maybe some listeners here, tinfoil hat optional whether you're thinking okay th- this is lock in because then you're, oh, you're held to nutanix right you have to be in their environment and that that's a, that's an interesting conversation because for some people as soon as you pick a vendor for anything it's lock in you know like oh i chose aws i'm locked in i think their point in this is being able to float across on prem or or other people's infrastructure is the way that you are actually being unlocked you know because you're not bound to aws or gcp or azure the lock-in point—I'm putting kind of air quotes around it—is the Nutanix AOS layer. Um, at some point, I think we're all locked in to something. You know, I'm kind of locked into my rent for a year. I can't really just pick up and go ad hoc. But I, I could see that being, you know, kind of playing devil's advocate. Something that's touted with the, you know, the the torch and the pitchfork—that uh, this is this is lock-in.
0: I'm kind of getting over the lock-in thing. So I actually blogged about this recently. I think. <laughs> For certain people, you want it just to friggin' work. You don't want to be like, "Well, oh, I got the you know the Cisco piece for the network, and I got VMware for this." And uh, sometimes they play well, and sometimes they get angry at each other, and they're bad partners, and all the stuff broke, and you know, and on and on and on and on and on. All of us as technologists have had this problem. So, if from a certain enterprise perspective, you go, "You know what? I just want it to work, and not have my engineers telling me as the business owner that." Well, because this happened and this happened, I don't know what the problem is, and I've got cases open with both support groups, and hopefully someone will have an answer and not just point the finger at one another. If you have one vendor supplying you with all the things, and let's presume that they can do it reasonably well, that's... Not necessarily bad, assuming you can at least you know consume their services at a, at a reasonable price. You don't always have to buy best in breed as long as what you are getting is, quote-unquote, good enough. A lot of times good enough really is good enough. And so, yeah, the, what's the downside? The vendor lock-in. It's harder to migrate off. Well, the smaller you are, the harder it is because you don't tend to have a lot of flexibility and just being able to, to to up and move something else. But if you're bigger particularly when it comes time to move, you can stand up new infrastructure and migrate over as you go, you know, old pod, new pod kind of a scenario. So it's not great, but it's not the end of the world. A lot of people do it that way, kind of changing out vendor solutions over refresh cycles, you know, as they, as they go forward. So I, again, I really think vendor lock ins okay for a certain kind of customer.
1: Yeah. And it's not so much, I don't really have a a strong opinion either way. You know, I I certainly am cognizant of those things during conversations. I feel that on the whole, people get a little too bent out of shape about lock-in, but it's certainly something that I felt like had not been mentioned and certainly will be. And it'll be interesting to hear the way these vendors describe what they feel about lock-in and and how this actually, to me, it actually helps you long, long long-term to have kind of that abstraction layer but uh I don't know people get weird about that stuff so <laughs> I just wanted to mention
0: it yeah no and i you kind of a parting thought here just to to conclude some of my uh, what my takeaways from Cisco live just uh Man, if you listen to the keynote with Chuck Robbins, he wasn't talking about interoperable or open or multi-vendor. It was an all Cisco message, baby. If you got an enterprise networking problem or if you got an enterprise anything problem, really, security, compute, Cisco is there to solve that problem for you. He wasn't talking about anybody else. So I think maybe we're going to see that from more vendors where it's like gloves are coming off. If they got answers uh, for you, they want to sell them to you. They don't want to smile and play nice and integrate. They want you to buy from all them. Maybe that's going to be a thing we see more and more of. We should get
1: in the third-party support business, Ethan. We could make a million. <laughs> we should. A <laughs> million true <troop> bucks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, anyway. well I think that brings us to the end of today's edition of the knots Podcast. You can reach Ethan. That would be me at ECBanks on Twitter and my blog is EthanCBanks.com and I also blog at Packetpushers.net. You can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter or his blog, wallnetwork.com. For more of our data knots shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You will find the data knots talking about containers and conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full stack engineering, storage architecture, and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your storage spindles spin, and your cables be cleanly managed. Wow, it's a big Harley going by, revving his engine at my dead-end street, which means he's about to turn around because there's nowhere for him to go. Hang on. Wait for it. I'm ready. Rev, rev. There he goes up the street. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that was epic. <laughs>